carrying on this morning in our journey together through the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us over the last two weeks, uh, we started, Howard gave us an introduction and an overview of the book, and last week, Roland took us through chapter one of the book. And uh, I want to start by asking you this morning, has anyone ever invited you to come to something or asked you to do something, and you agreed, but then once you got there, or once you started, you just began to regret it? You're like, you know, I wish this wasn't the case. I feel like we can all relate to that. You know, maybe the people that were supposed to be there didn't come and you were lonely. Or maybe you got invited to something else after you'd already confirmed to the first thing. And you actually kind of wish you could go to the second thing, but you feel bad because you confirmed for the first one already. Maybe the idea you had of the thing that you were going to was much better in your mind than when you were actually there. And the reality was way less than you were hoping it would be. And you, and you were quite disappointed when you had it. Right? Right. This happened to me I, once when I was a river guide. I was trying to think of like the best way to encapsulate this. Um, I used to be a river guide. I used to guide people down the Orange River on the border of South Africa and Namibia. And uh, my boss phoned me up one day. Listen, Brad, we've got a big season coming up, big preseason. We need all our guides, hands on deck. Please, can you come up within the next two weeks? And I said, sure, no problem, fantastic. Off we go. And, of course, so you go up in the company car, you know, and all the guides together. Off we go up to uh, Nordover on the border of South Africa and Namibia. And we, we're there in the spots, and we get there. And I look at the trip roster, and my first trip is in three weeks' time. And I'm like, what is going on? Yes, I forced my way onto another trip that was happening like in, in a day's time. I come back, and then there's still nothing for me to do. And they're like, no, what, we, we actually want you to help us build the restaurant, which I wasn't really on board for because... At this point, I, you know, I'd already finished studying. I had a degree. I wasn't there to be a laborer. I was there to be a river guide. And, um, and so, so I left, and I walked out, and I hitchhiked home, and that became known at the river as pulling a brad. It kind of ruined the relationship I had with the boss at the river at that time because I came back three weeks later for my trip. It was, it was, very, it was a fun time. But I, I got there and I was really disappointed. The reality that I was expecting, what I had been sold, was very different to what I got. And, uh, and I think we can all feel a little bit like that sometimes. Well, this morning we're going to read in Hebrews together. And I think you're going to see a similar story playing out in the lives of, of the people that, are, that the author speaks about. And, and there's a lesson that we can learn from that as we go through it together. So... We're going to do that, but as you can see from the slide, we're going from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, which is quite a lot of Hebrews, right? I wish we had more time, but Christmas is coming, and we had to finish before Christmas, right? So we've got two chapters to get through, and so as I was thinking about how to do this, I feel like um, I came up with an extended metaphor, which may or may not have been the Lord. Right? I like this metaphor, so hopefully you like it as well. I want you to think about it like a bird flying over a river. right? And the bird is going to start from up high. It's going to launch off the mountain rocks. It's going to fly over, and you can see where the river is going. You can kind of see the whole vista and the landscape. And then every now and again, as you're following the river, the bird's going to swoop down, and you're going to be able to see a little bit more closely. You might see some of the fish in the river, but then it's going to fly back up and carry on flying. And then it's going to come down again. It's going to get real close. It's actually going to take a fish out of the river, sit in the rock, eat the fish, have a good time, and then it's going to carry up and fly some more. That's a little bit like what we're going to do this morning. So when you hear me talking about birds and fish, hopefully that'll make some sense. All right. Let's, let's get going. Let's start. This is where we were last week. This is what Roland did very briefly. Roland preached from Hebrews chapter 1 through to um, Hebrews 2 verse 4. And the heart of what he was saying, that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God that we have ever been given Particularly, he is greater than the angels. This is the author's point. Right? And I thought Roland did a really fantastic job of unpacking that. I'm not going to try and redo that. If you want to catch it, go have a look on our website. You can listen to it there or watch it there. Right? But the author shows Jesus as the supreme revelation of God in history. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In years gone by, the author says, in all the history of Israel, God spoke to his people in various ways and through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. The fullness of himself has been made known in Jesus. And so because of that, Jesus is greater than any of the angels that have ever existed. He is the Lord God himself, the author and the sustainer of all creation. 
That's the heart of Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, that's why uh, that we would see and appreciate the greatness of Christ. Right? That's the heart of what he was trying to say, and that's where we're going to launch from today. So you need to hold that over here. You need to remember that. You can't forget that. That's important to where we're going to go. Right? That's the source of the river, if you will. Yeah. Thank you, Keith. This thing's a little wobbly. It's been irritating me. There we go. Okay. So the first section we're going to jump into is Hebrews chapter 2 from verses 5 to 9, right? And, uh, and the heart of this is about, for a little while, Jesus becomes lower than the angels. And we're going to view this, if you will, from up top. The bird's going to stay soaring on the thermals, right? But I want you to notice that there's a little bit of a shift in direction that begins to happen in these five verses, Right, so in chapter 1, Jesus is displayed as transcendent and, and glorious in his transcendence. Right? He is the Lord of all creation, the sustainer of it. But in this first section of chapter 2, the author reinforces that idea, but he begins to prepare us to see Jesus' glory in his imminence or in, in his humanity, in the incarnation when Jesus became human. Right? He wants to build the greatness of Jesus by showcasing his triumph on the cross. But at the same time, he wants to reassure us that the fact that Jesus as God became a man and died doesn't in any way lessen the greatness of Jesus that we've already seen. But is actually another way in which Jesus is unique and therefore is greater than anyone else. Right? So that's, that's really the heart of what he's trying to try and say. Let's have a look together. Hebrews chapter 2 from 5 to 9. Furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet for a little while you made them lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. For we, what we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels, because he suffered death for us. But he is now crowned with glory and with honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. At this section, the author quotes from Psalm chapter 8, and he, he interprets the psalm Christologically. In other words, he sees the, the phrase in the psalm, the Son of Man, as referring to Jesus himself. Right? Can you see how he uses the psalm to make his point? He says, for just a little while, Jesus became lower than the angels. And whilst this was the case, it was done so that he might achieve the way of salvation for us, which has resulted in God crowning him with glory and honor and the promise of things yet to happen, of things, all things to still be placed under his feet is still coming. That's the purpose of this section. It begins to prepare us for the incarnation of Jesus, the glory of the gospel, and it shows us that Jesus is still glorious and king even when he was man. Let's carry on flying. All right, this next section we're going to go into goes from Hebrews 2, from 10 to 18. And it, and it talks about Jesus becoming like us for the purpose of becoming our high priest. And it builds on the importance of Jesus' humanity. He shows that the humanity of Jesus was a prerequisite. It was necessary in order for Jesus to occupy his office of the high priest. Right. So we're going to swoop a little lower, and this time we're going to see a couple of the fish. Right. We're not going to eat them yet, but we're, just, we're going to look at them. Right. So I want you to notice, as we read through this together, I want you to notice how God positions suffering to have a divine purpose in the human life of Jesus. I want you to notice the importance and the significance of Jesus being made one of us. I want you to notice the, the reasons that the incarnation is said to be necessary for the gospel. And finally, we're going to see the wonderful explanation of Jesus as our high priest and what that means for us today. So, so let's read again together. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So now Jesus and the ones that he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among the assembled people. He also said to him, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children that God has given me. 
Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through the suffering and the testing, he is able to help us even when we are tested. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And just to let you, I could preach five sermons on the text we're going to do this morning. So I apologize if we fly over some things, right? But let's take a moment, let's, moment, let's pause, let's have a look at some of the fish that are in this section, if you will, right? And here, here's the first one. It's just this little nugget that you could almost miss in the midst of everything else that's going on. But I, but I want us to pay attention to this. God made Jesus perfect through what he suffered. That really is what it says. God made Jesus perfect through what he suffered. We, we don't like suffering. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable. It's often painful. It's emotionally taxing. It's physically exhausting. It's spiritually draining. It's psychologically paralyzing. Suffering, we're not talking about getting stuck in traffic or being the butt of the occasional joke. We're talking about the loss of a loved one. We're talking about being forced out of a job or losing or having to give up your friends. We're talking about being targeted by the mob of society or having to forfeit your home because something is going on. We're talking about psychological disorders that prevent your body from operating as it should or physical trauma that lands you in hospital where it takes ages to recover. We're talking about all these things and so much more. And it's one type of suffering on top of another, on top of another, on top of another often. And when we're in the midst of these things, how easy is it for us to feel as though God is not there? Where is God in this space, in the midst of my heartache and my hardship and the, the emotional trauma that I'm going through and the physical challenges that I'm wrestling with? Where is God? It's as though we, we think God should prevent these things from happening. That would be, you know, that's what we would like. The author says to us, he says, suffering is actually a tool that God uses in our lives. In fact, it's a tool that he used in the life of his own son. If he was going to spare anyone, he could have spared Jesus, but he didn't. He actually needed suffering in order that Jesus would be made perfect. And, and I, re I recognize this may leave you with more questions than answers, uh, because we have two problems. The one is this is not a message about suffering, and I don't have time to continue to dig into this, and there's a lot that we could dig up here, right? But if you want to chat more, I'd love to chat a bit afterwards. The second, I think there, some of those questions that this raises are answered a little bit as we go forward. Like maybe you're wondering this, like I wondered, how can Jesus, who was perfect in all that he did, still be made perfect by God through his suffering? How is it possible to perfect someone that's already perfected? I think that's a good question, right? I think it has something to do with verse 17 that we're going to get to in a moment. There are many other questions as we wrestle with suffering that, are, that come up in our lives. Let's remember that God uses suffering in our lives, just as He used suffering in Jesus' life. He's not absent in it. Let's have a look at one of the other fish that also builds into verse 17, interestingly, and I, and I love this. Right. So now Jesus and the ones that he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. So, so you, me, and Jesus, we all get to call God father. Well, I, we kind of know that, right? That, that's reasonably normative in the church. But, but please take a moment and just let this sink in. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He is not ashamed. You know what the opposite of that is? It means he is he's actually proud. Jesus is pleased. He is glad to be able to say, you know, Charles, you are my brother. 
Alison, you are my sister. Does that, does that blow your mind just a little bit? That God delights to celebrate you as his brother or sister. This is the same Jesus from chapter 1. This is the author and the sustainer of all creation. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is proud to call you his brother or sister. I feel like I should just go and sit down and we should just worship. That seems like the only response. But there's more. Right? I can't really believe we're going to move on, but we're going to move on. And there are other fish that we're going to see. Right? Look at this, this beautiful summary of the atonement. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death, and only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Jesus had to die. The great king of heaven, God himself, the guy who's now calling us his brothers and sisters, he had to die in order to break the power of the devil, to set you free and to set me free from the fear of death, the one thing none of us can avoid, so that we can live our lives abandoned to God. And to have the fullness of faith in Him, to follow Him wherever we go, because it doesn't matter. The final price has been paid. The final cost has been dealt with. Isn't that amazing? Shouldn't we just worship some more? But there's more. It carries on. Right? Look at this. Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made like us in every respect, His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He was tested in every way and suffered in every way, so that he is able to help us when we are tested. Jesus did all of this so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. That's why he was perfected through suffering. So that he has experienced all that it is to be human. He doesn't just know it in the incredible power of his foreknowledge, but he has lived it. Right. Nicky Gumbel once used this illustration. He said, I, I could write a book on my wife, and it could be 40 chapters long, and it could be in the library, and you could read it, and you could know my wife. You could know about her. But you don't know her like I know her because I've lived it. Jesus has lived it. He has been human. He has suffered in ways we can't comprehend. He knows what it is to be like us. He's experienced all the pain, the heartache, the trauma, the challenge, and the joy. And he's navigated a way through it all to honor God in everything that he did. And now he's seated next to the Father and he intercedes for us. He's there and he says, Father, please won't you forgive Brad? He doesn't know what he's doing right now. He's trying his best, God, but there's some stuff that he's carrying and, and he's, it's really difficult. Lord, won't you forgive him? Father, forgive him because I have already made him righteous. I paid the price for his sins. It's Jesus in heaven interceding before us, before the Father. You've got an advocate the King of glory, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He pleads for you day in and day out. It's 24 hours a day. It's seven days a week. There's no Sabbath for Jesus in heaven. Right? He's in the eternal rest of God, 365 days a year. Friends, how wonderful is our Savior. How great is this God that we get to know and love and serve and follow. And I we could carry on, and we need to carry on, but I want us to pause for a moment. And could some of you just lead us in prayers of thanksgiving? Could we just honor Jesus and declare how wonderful our God is together? Let's do that. And once you've done that, then we'll carry on. Just go. As you feel led, just pray for us.
Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends. I think it's fitting that we just honor our King as we do this. All the, all the scripture that we've read up until this point, all the way from Hebrews 1, all the way to the end of chapter 2, the author's been writing that to anticipate the section that's coming and a number of other sections that he's going to foreshadow in this passage. But, he, but he's going to introduce us in the beginning of chapter 3 to, to something that's, that's, that's the heart of what he's trying to say. And it's going to follow on from this section that we're doing. This first part of chapter 3, he, he uses this as well to continue to set the stage. And then he's going to launch in. So, so we're going to fly back up high for a moment. We're going to see where the river is going. Uh, and then we're going to really dive into the next section. So the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3 the author sets up this comparison between Jesus and Moses, and he wants to show us that Jesus is, in fact, greater than Moses as well. All right. And, uh, and what, what he's going to do is, after this, he's now going to show us the implications, why that's important, why we need to recognize that. Okay. I want you to notice, as we read the first part of Hebrews, from 1 to 6, Hebrews 3, I want you to notice this section suddenly shifts from a description about who Jesus is to an injunction towards us. We're now called to pay attention. We're now called to register what he's saying. And then there's a condition that gets attached to it in verse 6. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves, deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant, his work was an illustration of the truths that God would later reveal. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are that house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. A few nuggets, a few fish that we can see here very briefly. Notice that command in verse 1. For the first time since the beginning of chapter 2, the author switches his address back to the reader. And he says, therefore, in light of the greatness of Jesus, in light of the fact that he has done all of this, I want you to consider him. Can you feel the foretaste of Hebrews 12 coming? Right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. While we're starting here, fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to focus particular attention on him. In fact, I want you to notice in particular the faithfulness of Christ, that God, that Christ was faithful with what God had entrusted to him. And that's where the illustration to Moses comes in. And we're going to spell that out a little bit more as we go, go on into the next section. Secondly, I want you to notice that he addresses his readers here as holy brothers and sisters. And, and this is significant. One of, the, one of the things you're going to notice as we go through the book of Hebrews is there are four different warning passages, or five different warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Roland did the first one last week quite briefly. We're going to spend quite a lot of time in the second one this morning that's going to come from verse, chapter 3, verse 7. And there are a couple of others in chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. And the temptation amongst scholars and amongst Christians is to say, well, the author wasn't speaking to Christian people. I want you to notice how he addresses them here. Holy brothers and sisters. It means those who have been set apart, those who are regenerate, redeemed. Finally, I want you to notice his encouragement at the end of verse 6. He says, we will confirm our salvation by holding fast to the end. We need to hold fast our confidence in Jesus. We need to hold fast our ability to boast and to say, it is in Christ that I am saved. It is through Christ that I conquer all things, right? That I am more than a conqueror because I'm in Christ. It's in Him. It's all about Him. It's not about me. And again, that's going to get played out for you beautifully in chapter 11 as you, as you read it. But it's anticipating that for us now. Okay, so the stage has now been set for us. Now He jumps in. And we're going to do this one a little bit differently. We're going, to, we're going to break it up a little bit more as we go because there's a lot for us here, right? 
But this is the warning against unbelief from Hebrews chapter 12, 3, verse 7 to 19. And, and now we're going to swoop down. We're going to take the fish out of the river, and we're going to feast on it, even though I don't really like fish. Right? This is a good fish. Right? Everything the author has said from, from chapter 2, verse 5, has built to this moment. This is the climax of his exposition. It's like the crescendo of his argument. It's the focal point, the centerpiece toward which the whole river is heading. So let's, let's jump in and let's eat some fish together. All right. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors, te ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Let's pause here for a moment and just clarify what's going on, because what the author has done is he's cited Psalm 95 from verses 7 to 11. It's quite a long citation, and this psalm references events that happened in the history of Israel, events that are recorded for us in Numbers chapter 14. Right? So I want to remind you of the story that he is being referenced here so that we, we carry the fullness of that into the text that's coming. All right? So this is, this is the moment that speaks to how God, Moses, and the Israelite people responded to one another after the spies had come back from scouting out the promised land. So just to recap the story, in case you miss parts of it that are significant, remember the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. They were slaves to the Egyptian pharaohs, right? And uh, God calls Moses to lead them out, and he displays his might over Pharaoh with ten plagues that progressively get more and more serious till most of the Egyptians' crops are destroyed, most of their livestock are destroyed, and they still won't let the people go. And so eventually God murders every firstborn son in the nation of Egypt right, and establishes very clearly the glory and the power of God. And so they leave. And they, they get released. And off they go. And they come to the Red Sea. And behind them, the army of Pharaoh now comes. He's angry now. He wants to take them out. And they have nowhere to go. There's a sea in front and an army behind. But between them and the army is the cloud of God that keeps the army at bay. And God opens the sea. And the Israelites walk across the sea on dry land. And the Egyptians try to follow. And as they get into the ocean, God releases the walls and they, the whole army drowns. Then they go into the wilderness. And there's nothing to eat, so God provides manna. Then they get tired of eating just manna, and so God provides quail. Then they've got nothing to drink, so God makes water spring from a rock to, to give them all the water that they need. <clears throat> then they get to Mount Sinai, and there's the glorious appearance of God. And God appears in the fullness of His glory and speaks to the whole Israelite nation. They're so terrified that they say to Moses, listen, Moses, that was great, but let's never do that again. You speak to God. We don't want to do that. And Moses goes up onto the mountain, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and they fail, and they do it again. And then they go, and God brings them to the edge of the promised land. And he says, I want you to send 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe. And the spies go out, and 40 days later, the spies come back. And 10 of those spies are dismayed. And they say to the people, guys, the, the land is great, but the people are too strong for us. The cities are too fortified. There are giants in the land. We will never be able to go in and conquer this land. It's better that we would have died in the wilderness. And Caleb and Joshua say, guys, this land is fantastic. God has given us an amazing land. Let's go in and take the land. And after those 12 spies give their report to the people of Israel, this is the response in Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation of Israel raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That's the response of the people of God to the report of the spies. And I wonder if we have any comprehension of what that moment felt like for God. You know how we read in the New Testament it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit? 
Can you imagine being God at this moment? Can you imagine what you have just done for these people? How you have put yourself on the line. How you have showed them over and over and over again the magnificence of your greatness. And they slap you in the face. They say, Lord, I would rather die than receive your plan for me. It would have been better if you just killed me in the wilderness than for me to go into what you've called me to. Well, this is how God responds to some excerpts because he says a lot. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one of them will come into the land that I swore to make you dwell in. That's God's promise. Psalm 95 puts it like this, and the the word in the Hebrew is so strong. It says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. You know how, how strong that is? For God to say that about his people. They are a people who always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Can you imagine God said that about us? This is God's description of his own people. And you know, the temptation for us as we read this is to say like, well, you know, that was then. And look at the revelation that they had. I mean, how could they have been so stupid? How could they have not trusted God in this thing? Can't they? I mean, he split the sea. I mean, are you kidding me? How could you not trust God? There were the plagues and the sea and the lightning from the sky and the pillar of fire and the miraculous food every day. How do you not trust God? But in that moment, they forget all of their history. And in that moment, all they see is the fear. It's like Peter when he walks out the boat and he's walking on water and then it says, and he saw the wind and the waves. And he stopped seeing Jesus. And he begins to sink. And the Israelite people, they have forgotten all of the things that God did. And they just see the fear. How often do we do that? In case you're thinking, Brad, hold up a minute. Like God, that's Old Testament. God doesn't work like that anymore. I want you to see the reason the author has placed this conclusion where he has in the book. Because he's done a very particular thing, and there's a track of thought, the river that he wants us to follow. He's making four comparisons. He starts, and he's comparing the leaders. And he says, you know Moses. Moses was faithful among all of God's house. Moses is lifted up among the nation of Israel as one of the greatest leaders that they ever had. He is the most humble man that ever lived. It's written about him. Jesus is greater than Moses. That's the author's point. And we, we as the readers get compared to the nation of Israel at the lowest points in their existence. And it's a really rough comparison. Right? It's, it's really tough. But that's the author's point. He says, I want you to notice, I'm speaking to you, and you are being compared to that wilderness generation. And this is where we think there's a distinction. We say, well, look at the revelation that they got. I mean, their revelation was incredible. There were plagues and the sea and there was food and and thunder and lightning. And we're often tempted to think, if I could see God, if God worked in that kind of obvious way in my life, then I would never doubt. The author's entire point in building up, as he has done for two entire chapters, is that the revelation that we have received in Jesus is far greater than anything they had. In fact, if they had had the revelation of Jesus like we have had the revelation of Jesus, they they, they would have had far more than what they had. We have received the full, the exact imprint of the nature of God. We can see it. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The greatness of the revealed Christ is a much more significant revelation of who God is than the fact that God can do miracles. That's the author's point. And what follows is so we are without excuse. Right? He'll say that later. But that's, that's the heart. 
You need to recognize we have received far more than they ever got. In fact, they would have been blessed if they could have just seen Jesus like we've seen Jesus. This is why verse 12 is about to call us to account. And chapter 4 begins to anticipate the, the fourth comparison, the comparison of the two different promises. They were going into the promised land to receive a physical rest. We are going into heaven to receive a spiritual rest. So let's jump back to Hebrews. Hopefully now we're carrying the picture, we're carrying the heart, the weight of this moment. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. And then he kind of reiterates it from verse 15. Remember what it says. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people that Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people that disobeyed him? So we see that, they were, that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. <clears throat> There's the warning. Make sure that your heart is not evil or unbelieving. I wouldn't be so bold as to say that to you. But that's what the author writes to us. Turning you away from the living God. What does that look like? It looks like the generation in the wilderness. It looks like choosing fear over the promise of God. It looks like a heart that says, well, I know God has said this, but, but I'm just really afraid. Like, what if God doesn't come through? Hopefully you'll remember Howard's intro to the series if you were here. But in his intro, Howard explained in the context of the letter to the Hebrews, what's happening is that Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, were facing persecution for following Jesus. And they were, they were pretending, to, they wanted to pretend to denounce Jesus and to pretend to be Jews, all the while knowing who Jesus was, and in their hearts still honoring Him as Lord, but saying, you know what, we're no longer Christians. You know, we're just Jews. Because then they would escape persecution. Then no one would steal their property or throw them into prison. That's what they were afraid of. The question that God has left sitting with me is, what are we afraid of? No one has ever yet tried to throw me in prison for following Jesus. It's coming. It's coming in our liberal society. Right? But what are we afraid of? What's the sin that's seeking to deceive us and turn us away from God? For the Israelites, it was fear. For many of us, fear is still very real. And what the author is saying to us is when that, that fear rises up in you and causes you to fail to trust in God, it's actually disobedience. And it actually is evil and it's unbelieving. Is it, is it your desire to be in control? Because it's so much easier when we're in control and everything fits nicely and neatly in its place. Is it, is it pride? Is it anger? I don't know what it is. But then he calls us to help one another. He says in verse 13, warn one another every day while it's still today. Call out sin in one another. Call one another to righteousness. Why? So that you're not hardened towards God. So that your heart stays supple towards Him. So you can respond in the faith that He wants you to. So that we won't be tainted by evil and unbelief. As I was preparing this, I felt, I felt maybe a word for us this morning and how this looks for us is, is we need to watch out for familiarity. That familiarity breeds contempt in us. See, the key to the author's entire argument is the incredible greatness of Jesus. And it's so easy for us to lose that and take Him for granted. It's so easy to come to church and sing the songs and listen to someone tell you about Jesus, right? And hear people praying. It's so easy to even speak the words and say them out. It's easy for Jesus to become small and colloquial. 
Friends, we can't let that happen. We need to rejoice in the intimacy and the love that He has for us. He's called us His brothers and sisters. It's amazing the love that God has for us. But we can't let that love allow the awe to dissipate. Our God is an awesome God. It's the awesomeness of Jesus that makes His words and His presence count for more than any other. Let's hold on to the awesomeness of our Savior. the heart of where we're going to go. Uh, we're going to flap back up high a little bit as we, as we close out. Right, and this, this last section in Hebrews chapter 4 speaks about the promise of God's rest. And as again, there's a lot of fish in here, but we, we're just going to, we're going to float a little bit above them and see them from a distance. There's two things I want you to notice as we read through this first half of chapter 4. The first is that the author makes clear the cost of an evil and unbelieving heart. He says it's, it, be, it leads to the failure to enter into the Sabbath rest of God. But he also tells us what the antidote is. He says you, instead of responding in fear and disobedience, you can respond in faith. And it's faith paired with the revelation of God that galvanizes us into obedience. And we need to strive to exercise faith in our walk with God day in and day out. Secondly, he says, as we wrestle with, between faith and unbelief, because we all wrestle with that as people, right? No, none of us is perfect. I am far from it. We all wrestle with this, this holding faith and unbelief together. And, and this is, these are wrestles that come to, into focus at crucible moments. They sit in the background for most of the day or for most of the week, and then there's a moment where you're like, now I need to trust God. Is your faith going to stand the test? The author's caution to us is that we need to be aware that we can't pull one over, the, over God. We need to be aware that He sees everything and knows everything, and we need to live with integrity before Him. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 4. God's promise of entering His rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they did not share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter His rest. As for the others, God says, In my anger I took an oath that they will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since He made the world. We know it is ready because of the place in the Scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all His work. But in other passages, God said, They will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news and failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering His rest. And that time is today. God announces through David much later in the words already quoted, Today when you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving the Israelite people rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest that's still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow. It exposes the, our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes. And He is the one to whom we are able to account. We are accountable. Much of Hebrews 4 is given to the author encouraging his listeners to strive, to, to do their best to make sure that they don't fail to enter the rest that God provides. And this encouragement is clearly given in contrast to the generation of the Israelites who did fail to enter the promised land and who failed to receive that physical rest that God had promised because of their unbelief and their disobedience. 
The failure of that generation is pointed out for us so that, and we are encouraged to avoid it. It's an example for us. So we'd be able to see it and not do likewise. They as a generation failed to receive the promises of God with faith, and we have to do the opposite. When God speaks, when we read His Word, we need to know that it is true, that it is full of the promises of God, and that we can believe every word written in it, because He spoke it. We must not fail to enter eternity, God's Sabbath rest. That's what's on the line. And again, this idea builds on and launches from the platform the author has set so far in the book. If we consider the greatness of Jesus, particularly as he's portrayed in Hebrews thus far, we are reminded of that first warning in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that the greatness of Jesus directly relates to the importance of his revelation. That if Jesus has spoken, then we can and should have complete faith in his promises and be deeply aware of the consequences of failing to respond to them. Each and every day, we're called to respond to God with faith. After encouraging us to respond in faith, the author warns us sharply of the consequences of thinking that we can do anything else except escape God's notice, or anything else and escape God's notice. He says, guys, you need to know that the Word of God is powerful and alive, and as the Scriptures are spoken, as you read the Scriptures, they are useful to you because they are able to expose the things in your heart. They are able to show you the parts that are tending towards evil and unbelief. Well, you might not even have noticed it, but if you invite the Scriptures to open up your heart, you'll begin to see. Rather do that than try and hide from a God from whom nothing can be hidden. Because at the end of the day, you will find yourself on the edge of the promised land, being unable to go in. And that's what none of us wants. That's the message of Hebrews chapter 2, from 5 through to 4.13. It's a long passage of Scripture. There's so much we could have dug into. But I want us to take a moment just to close our eyes, and I think we're just to invite God and say, Lord, if there is, is there something in my heart? Won't you, won't you just open up my heart and, and help me to see if there's something that's here that's turning me away from you? towards whatever sin it might be. And as God begins to show that to you, if He does, I want you to picture Jesus in front of you, and I want you to take that thing, and I want you to give it, give it to Him and say, Lord, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to live with faith, God. I want to believe You because You are the King of heaven. You are the sustainer of all creation. Your very breath keeps the ocean waves flowing into Musenberg. Your power controls the hurricane in Japan. And if God just begins to open something up, just give it back to Him. Repent of it and ask Him to fill you with faith to believe in Him. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and to examine our hearts. And Lord, if there, is, if there is sin in there that is causing us to turn away from you, to be called away from you, to, to respond in fear or in pride or in anger and so many other sins, just show it to us, we ask God. 